What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is Pia Baranchini, and welcome to Everything is the Best, the podcast where I get vulnerable and make others do it with me. The goal here is to deep dive into interesting people's journeys, finding common denominators, and hopefully making you feel not so alone. So let's laugh, let's cry, and let's get inspired to live our best lives. Hello, my darlings. We have such a special episode today because our guest is my sister-in-law. Sarah Yeomans is an archaeologist specializing in the imperial period of the Roman Empire with a particular emphasis on ancient science and religion. Currently pursuing her doctorate at the University of Southern California, Go Trojans. She also consults on educational programming at the Biblical Archaeology Society in Washington, D.C., and is an adjunct faculty at both St. Mary's College of Maryland and West Virginia University. A native Californian, she grew up down the street from us. Sarah holds an MA in archaeology from the University of Sheffield, England, and an MA in art history from the University of Southern California. She's conducted archaeological fieldwork in Israel, Italy, Turkey, France, and England, and has worked on several television and film productions, most recently as an interviewed expert on the story of God with Morgan Freeman, which if you haven't watched it, you have to. She is a provost fellow at the University of Southern California is the recipient of a research fellowship from the American Research Institute of Turkey, as well as a mayor's fellowship at the Huntington Library and Museum in Los Angeles. Her current research involves ancient Roman medical technology and cults, as well as the impact of pandemic events on Roman society. She's generally happiest when covered in dirt, roaming archaeological sites somewhere in the Mediterranean. I couldn't imagine a better human to discuss our current pandemic with, considering she knows every detail about every pandemic in human history. We talk about the similarities of pandemics within the context of society, government, agriculture, and how our current pandemic is much different than those of the past. And by the way, conspiracy theorists have been around since the dawn of time, which I think is hilarious. I learned a great deal about the role of climate change and other critical environmental factors, how pandemics are inevitable, the role of fear in people's reactions and how they often create more damage. That's okay to feel scared, depressed, and listless. We touched on what's living in the permafrost and how incredibly vital it is we stop our planet from warming. The beautiful things that we also discussed what happens next, how our knowledge of the past will prepare us gracefully into the future and that we have a brilliant opportunity to see what our society is lacking and demand changed. The common denominator is always the same. Don't be an asshole, lead with grace and vote, especially in local elections. 
please enjoy. This is a full-blown history lesson for free. Thank you for doing this. Oh, it's great to see you. And uh, before we begin, I would love for you to just tell everyone who you are and give a little background as to how your journey into becoming a full-blown archaeologist. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. I I am Sarah Yeomans. I am Pia's sister-in-law. But I am also a Roman archaeologist. And it's not a job that, you know, most little kids think about. And I didn't either. It was not on my radar until one very transformative afternoon. I was 21 years old and studying abroad in France, which at that time translated to basically backpacking around Europe most of the time. And I took a night train with a girl in February, and it was a disaster of a trip. I got my wallet stolen. Everything was stolen. We checked into this horrible pensione that had cockroaches. Like it was just like, it started out terribly. Um, It was pouring rain the whole week we were there. And we spent three days going from the embassy to Western Union to American Express, trying to replace all of my documents. And we just hated Rome and were ready to get on a train and get out of there. And I'd never been there before. And I thought, well, I need to see something. And so one afternoon, I got a map, I bought a cheap umbrella, and I took myself to the Roman Forum. And my girlfriend was having nothing to do with it. She stayed back at our cockroach-infested pensione. (laughs) And it was me that February afternoon, walking through the Roman Forum in the rain with my soggy map. And it just enchanted me. I could not stop thinking about the fact that I am walking on stones that Julius Caesar had stepped on, that Mm -hmm. Cleopatra had stepped on, that Augustus had stepped on, and that all of these buildings and all of these monuments were built by people like us who had families and dreams and challenges and happy moments and sad moments. And, And it was, you know, through these structures that I felt really connected to people that lived thousands of years before us. And it was that afternoon uh, that I decided this is what I was going to do. And I went back to France and got serious about the rest of my studies. And when I got back to the U.S., I changed my major at college, uh, took a few extra classes so that I had enough to get into grad school. I went to grad school and you know, my father had always told me as a teenager, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And it was some of the best advice I've ever had. And my job has been an incredible adventure. Um, I've never looked back. I've never bored. There's always something new to learn and experience. And it takes me to wonderful places and I do have a travel bug. So it was, you know, one of those few moments in life where it was a true aha moment. Um, that's it. That's I always want to know when that moment was. Yeah, it just because you have great. to listen to them. Because if you don't, then you're putting yourself on like a very wrong track. Yeah, yeah, and you feel it, right? You feel mm-hmm. it when it clicks for you, um, and I'm, it's not always easy uh, following that call, but it always feels like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, for those listening. It was important to have Sarah on right now, uh, in particular, because it hit me like a couple days ago. I remember the last time you were in town, Sarah, you spoke at Caltech. And 
it was a conversation about was about pandemics, correct? And like how they how they affect climate change. I remember you explaining it to me and we were all sitting there like, what? (laughs) Well, so yes, close the other way around actually. So, you know, my, for the last few years, my research has been very focused on ancient Roman medicine and the ways that pandemic events affected the Roman empire, not just Mm. in terms of public health, but also, you know, how it affected the empire politically, culturally, economically. And, In recent years, there's been a lot of discoveries and new technologies in other areas like climate science, like epidemiology, um, that has allowed us to understand how climate shifts and change in the Earth's uh, climate affected these pandemic events and Mm -hmm. in certain cases uh, instigated them. Um, And so this link between what happens to our planet and the climate in particular and the ways that pathogens behave, the ways that animals and people move uh, and mingle together, these things are very affected by what's happening in terms of climate changing and climate shifts. And um, Can you give an example? Well, yes. So there was an event in 536 AD uh, during the reign of the Emperor Justinian. And it was either a volcano or a meteor impact, uh, meteorite impact on the earth. And whichever one it was, it kicked up a tremendous amount of dust into the earth's atmosphere and launched the planet into what we call a nuclear winter. So basically not enough sun is getting through to grow crops. This means massive famine uh, in all parts of the world. And in the Roman Empire in particular, the Eastern Roman Empire at this point, the Emperor Justinian started moving huge amounts of stored grain from Egypt up into the northern Mediterranean region, continental Europe. And what loves grain? Rats. What ride around on rats? Fleas. Right at that time... (sighs) the bubonic plague bacterium had evolved, had developed a mutation that allowed it to survive for long periods of time in the gut of the flea. And that made it a very uh, effective hitchhiker. So when these shipments of grain are arriving in continental Mm. Europe to feed people because they were no longer able to grow crops, uh, that is the first arrival we have of the bubonic plague in Europe. And it killed, we believe, between 40 to 50% of the population Mm -hmm. of people who were infected. So the way that we interact with our environment is in many ways informed by what's happening with the climate. You know, as places become uninhabitable, people and animals will move to other places and they will come into contact with other people and other animals and all of their pathogens. And so then you have this mix of, of groups that don't normally happen in the natural world. Uh, and in our case, if we've never been exposed to these pathogens, we have no immunity to them. So what happens in our planet's climate and the effect that it has on the movement of people and animals um, is pretty critical in terms of public health. Yeah, because we need a perfect little ecosystem for everything to operate accordingly, which is scary. <laughs> The more in balance that we are, uh, the the healthier we are, not just us, but our environment. 
Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that, that's sort of how, that's how germs mutate, right? They come into contact with other germs and they borrow some parts of those other germs, RNA, and uh, it makes them more adaptable. It makes them easier to, it makes it easier for them to jump from host to host. And so, yeah, whenever you have diverse ecosystems crashing together in unnatural ways, there's a potential for a virus or a bacterium to mutate in a way that could be very harmful to people. So the coronavirus is clearly very inevitable. Statistically speaking, given the factors, uh, our massive human population, we're almost 8 billion, uh, the ways that we crash up against the animal world, exploit the animal world and environment, it was statistically inevitable. Most uh, epidemiologists have been saying this for years. We just didn't know what it was going to look like. Mm. And how bad is it? Honestly, from a historical standpoint, it's, I mean, I don't want to minimize what's happening to people. It's clearly bad. You can see on the news, um, you know, and even one death is too many and tragic. But if you compare it to what's happened in the past, we got off pretty easy. (laughs) Um, The smallpox pandemic in the second century was vicious and killed as many as 10% of the entire population. Um, you know, the bubonic plague in the 6th century, it came up again in the 14th century. 14th century, it killed almost 75 million people. Population of, of continental Europe dropped from about 450 million to 375 million in about three or four years. Mm. And that is, you know, we're not, it, this is not that. <laughs> yeah. um, and we we have much, much better management techniques for this. Uh, We have tremendous scientists and doctors and researchers. They're eventually going to get us through this. (laughs) You want to feel better about what you eat, but sometimes it's hard to prepare healthy meals that taste good. Also, you're busy. With Saqqara, you can reach your health goals without sacrificing taste. Saqqara is a nutrition-based company that focuses on overall wellness, starting with what you eat. Their organic, ready-to-eat meals are made with powerful plant-based ingredients, and they are designed to boost your energy, improve your digestion, and get your skin glowing. The menu of creative chef-crafted breakfasts, lunches, and dinners changes weekly, so you'll never get bored, and it's delivered fresh anywhere in the U.S. Along with delicious meals, Sakara also has daily wellness essentials, like supplements and herbal teas to support your nutrition. To boost results, Try the best-selling Metabolism Super Powder, an all-natural remedy for bloating, weight gain, and fatigue. It's something I take often. It tastes like chocolatey heaven, and it's so easy to travel with. Sakara has received rave reviews from Vogue, Goop, The New York Times, and more. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash best, B-E-S-T, or enter code BEST, capital B-E-S-T at checkout. That's Sakara S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash B-E-S-T to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash BEST. 
Hey girl, hey, welcome to Taste of Taylor, my weekly podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Strecker. You might know me from Sirius XM Radio. I mean, I was there for like 12 years after all. But then Howard Stern allegedly got jealous of me, so I had to leave. I was actually able to pull myself up by the bootstraps and start my own podcast, Taste of Taylor, which is now officially with Dear Media. I'm so excited to say that. Ha! So I promise you in this podcast, you're going to either learn about something, you're going to be inspired by someone that's like always coming from a perspective of like humor, then this is the place for you. I hope you enjoy this little snack. How does what is happening right now in terms of all the layers of conspiracy theories and unrest and the economy, is this, uh, you know, how does this compare to those of the past? Is it kind of like the same cycle each time? Yes. And in fact, as a historian, it's one of those things that, you know, I was expecting all of this because I've seen it in every other pandemic event I've ever studied. But it is sort of, as a historian, it's been fascinating. As a human, it's, you know, in some respects, <laughs> has me banging my head against the wall a little bit because... For, let, let me tackle conspiracy theories for a minute because that's an interesting one. And, and it, they are dangerous in the sense that they can really scare people. Um, and they can, you know, people who really are on board with um, ascribing to these, it can make them very uncooperative. Have people been like this since the beginning of time? Has there always been like a conspiracy theory? Like in like 500, was there like a conspiracy theory group? Absolutely. <laughs> and we have evidence for it. And so people are more crazy like, now. We've all been consistently crazy. <laughs> absolutely. Yep, exactly. You know, some things didn't change. And, <laughs> and people, you know, the Spanish flu, people thought it was the Germans deliberately infecting, mm. you know, um, the population because of course you're in the middle of world war one, but you know, we are hardwired as humans to look for anomalies in our environment. 10,000 years ago, our survival depended on picking out that one weird thing that wasn't quite right. And so our Mm -hmm. brains are constantly looking uh, in some cases for overly complicated (laughs) scenarios and reasons for things. So it's not surprising that these are out there. Um, and it is the way that humans have reacted in every pandemic event I've ever studied. There is always going to be a faction of people who ascribe to conspiracy theories because at the, the end of the day, it's all based in fear. And people are looking for reasons to explain what's happening to them. And it, it gives them a greater sense of control. Mm. So That's I think, fascinating, of course. That yeah. makes complete sense. And that's just a human nature thing. That's not like a modern time. Oh yeah. It's really uncomfortable to feel like we don't have control over our environment or our health or what's happening. I understand us having more of that fear now considering medicine and science and the internet and globalization and all of that. But I, it's almost like charming to be that fearful so long ago when it's like, you guys have no clue what's going on at all. (laughs) Yeah. Like you live your life. Like people died all the time. Like giving birth was scary. Oh, sure. So I can't like scarce. You don't have showers. You don't have medicine. So I would think it would be, or, you know, medicine that we consider modern medicine today. But, but I think it would be so funny to still be that fear-based when I would assume that every day was essentially pretty fearful. (laughs) Every day was a little scary. Yeah. Um, and, and I think in, in that time too, you know, they didn't know that they 
didn't have tools, right? So in the, you know, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, people really, you know, they, they blamed it on God or they blamed it on the devil or they, you know, so they, they thought they had really good reasons and explanations for what was happening to them. And just like, you know, certain people who are believing in unfounded conspiracy theories, you know, they really believe that these are the answers. And so, as strange as it may seem, it does bring people a certain amount of comfort to feel like, you know, okay, well, this is why it's happening. And now this whole crazy situation is making more sense to them. Um, And, you know, uh, ironically lessens to some degree, at least some of that fear. It is a very humbling thing to realize that we are not in control of nature. We are part of nature. Mm -hmm. Well, I think certain people in our government would disagree with that statement. (laughs) Well, we won't get into that. Um, So obviously we're much better off now than we have been in any other time in history. Like, what are you noticing about this pandemic that maybe diff like was was much more elevated scientifically and medical wise since our last pandemic? Oh yeah, we are, and, and we do have a lot of reasons to be optimistic. We are a better place than any humans in history to confront a medical crisis of this type. Uh, we have science and technology that is light years ahead of what it was even a hundred years ago, and researchers that are incredibly skilled uh, with a lot of wonderful tools at their disposal. And I think the other thing that is really helpful, you know, and I know that we look a lot at the, you know, sort of the negative aspects of social media and media in general, and it does make it easier for disinformation to spread, but it also makes it much easier for information to spread, life-saving mm-hmm. information. You know, we can on our phones, pull up interviews with epidemiologists and public health experts, and in a matter of minutes, inform ourselves about what's happening and the best recommendations to protect ourselves. And we can use these same technologies to communicate with other people, mobilize resources. Um, I've seen incredible acts of generosity and grace um, Mm. through through certain channels, um, people who are really stepping up to help other people. We don't have any record of this happening in past pandemics, in part because of you know, we didn't have that kind of way of storing information back then. Um, but I do think we are, as a whole, a more compassionate society. Uh, and I do think we're seeing positive evidence of that every day. That's nice to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, truly, like, and I just... Because we can, and I don't want to bring something positive to something negative, but of course you, I mean, in general, in life, people always end up sharing negative stories and fear-based stories more than positivity. And I love to always focus on the positive stuff. And I'm happy that if you even look on Instagram, there's like, thank good news and some good news and all these Instagram accounts. And now there's going to be, I know, like a television show that just features good news and positive stories of things happening, which is great. But I would also love to ask you um, that like fear factor when these, when these pandemics start, um, like that like negative reactive behavior that seems to also be consistent with human nature. I'm, I'm sure these are consistent, obviously, with every pandemic. And I would love your input on kind of like how that affects the situation. Yeah. 
Yeah, fear. So it, it, it is, I call them secondary consequences of, of pandemic events and what mm, I've seen sense. in antiquity uh, all the way up through the Spanish flu. It is people's fear that motivates certain behaviors that in the end can be even more harmful and more destabilizing. Um, and so uh, we've seen in every single event you know, the finger pointing, the the blame game, you know, there's a specific group of people or, or a specific, um, you know, country, and it's their fault. They did this to us. And you see that in every single event. And, you know, the culpability or responsibility of different countries or organizations or social groups for, you know, pandemic events, you know, these are things to unravel later if we're going to talk about policy and how they're managing their natural world and their animals and resources. But it's not helpful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, what we need to do is focus on, you know, nobody wanted this to happen. And so it is always a human instinct to want to find a reason and to place blame because people are angry. Um, They're angry uh, at the restrictions in their life. They're angry at what's happening to the economy. People are mad. And what do we do when we're mad? We want someone to be mad at. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the anger and the fear motivates behaviors that can be really destructive. Um, in, In the 14th century and also in the 6th century, we have evidence of people, they were so scared of what was happening um, during this pandemic that they just left. They abandoned their towns. They abandoned, uh, some in cases even abandoned their families and the fabric of their society and their economy completely fell apart. It became a sort of every person for themselves. Mm. We're not there. This particular virus is nowhere near as severe and as fatal as those those health crises, the bubonic plague. We're not there. We don't need to be there. Our society does not need to unravel. It won't unravel. Uh, so the best thing we can do is, you know, acknowledge the fear. It is scary when you feel things changing like this and they're so uncertain. But we also have a lot of tools uh, out there. To cope with this. And we have a lot of tools out there also to help us kind of digest that fear and and manage it. It it is going to be okay. We are going to get through it. Um, But fear is very destabilizing. So, you know, when people are afraid, they don't act in the most rational or helpful manner. Um, And touching on that, obviously, it's normal to feel scared and anxious, but you... um have talked about before that that's we're biologically programmed to feel that way and upheaval because we don't have generational memory. Can you explain that to me? Yeah. So I know, I know it sounds because so, right. So think about, again, I fall back on that model, like 10,000 years ago, I think about how much our culture has changed in 10,000 years, technology, our world is completely different. Our biology has hardly changed at all. So we are essentially the same biological beings that our ancestors were 10,000 years ago. And 10,000 years ago, any change in your environment could be fatal. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Very precarious existence <laughs> at that time. So we are intuitively and primally 
afraid of and wary of change or disruption because in our, you know, sort of cave person minds, that equals, oh my God, potential death. (laughs) So, you know, we are resistant to change and any, you know, most of us consciously so. It's uncomfortable and uncertainty is uncomfortable and scary. And that is part of our our biological makeup. It is perfectly normal to feel these things, to feel the anxiety, to feel the fear and the uncertainty and and the depression and listlessness that I think a lot of us have, have been experiencing given the extraordinary amount of disruption that's happened in the last three months. But this this generational memory, um, the best way I can maybe illustrate it is, you know how uh, migrating birds, you know, the birds will will hatch their chicks in a completely different part of the world. And those baby birds, when they get old enough, they know how to migrate back to the exact same place that their parents came from the following year, that mm-hmm. following season. That is is what I mean by generational memory. Certain species... Um, have these types of instincts encoded in their DNA from previous generations. As humans, now there are studies being done about this at a, you know, a DNA level, but consciously, we don't remember what our parents lived or our grandparents. You know, we only have our own memories. So we don't remember as humans having gone through these episodes before. You know, no one alive remembers what the Spanish flu was like. And so we don't have a frame of reference to reassure ourselves, yes, it happened and it was terrible and it was very disruptive, but we got through it. Uh, And not only did we get through it, we had periods of time when we thrived as a society and as a species. The 20s roared. There were amazing things that happened after that terrible period during the World War I era. So we don't have those memories that our great-grandparents and their parents had. So we don't have those resources to so, I wonder them. how that differentiates from like generational trauma. Mm, yeah, there's Which studies. I do think is like a real thing too, you know, sure. like because I understand like the biology of it makes complete sense, but then I'm sure there must be some sort of like energetic... I don't know enough. To, I'm not. I'm not uh... You know, there are some really interesting studies being done about that, and and I, that that was a good example that this sort of the trauma, the generational trauma, how you know what ex, what our mother may have experienced or our grandfather comes through us, not just in this experiences they share with us or the way that maybe we were treated as child children, but actually in our DNA. And, you know, I think, you know, maybe one of these days science is going to get to the bottom of that, but consciously. Yeah. Consciously. Just don't like, you know, have you ever gone through an awful breakup? Like that first (laughs) breakup, I remember my first breakup in high school. Like I thought I was going to die. It was the end of the world. It was the worst thing I'd ever been through at the time. I was crazy about this guy. And it doesn't make doesn't mean successive breakups were fun, but you do have that knowledge. Like, okay, I've been through this. I before. survived that. I survived it. This sucks, but I'm gonna survive this too. <laughs> like, we don't have that frame of reference for what's happening right now, but our great grandparents did. Uh, so if they were here, they'd probably tell us, like, you're gonna be okay. <laughs> That's what's been so cute. I've seen so much on different news outlets and social media, like 
people who have survived the Holocaust and the wars saying like, we're going to be fine. Like I've been through these types of horrible atrocities before, you know, like these yeah. cute little old women on these, like, we're going to be fine. Like, so I, I saw that too. It's so <laughs> it's comforting, isn't it? So because, comforting. you know, they have that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and when this really first started and it became clear that it was going to be as impactful as it was, I started reading a lot of books. I don't know why. I just, I love historical periods. I started reading a lot of books about the Blitz in London during World War II and oh my gosh, the things that these people live through on a daily basis. Like what? And well, I mean, so the Germans were bombing the heck out of London. And, and every night they knew that people were going to die. Buildings were getting destroyed and collapsing. And every morning people were digging out their neighbors and the bodies of their neighbors. And it was just this horrific hellscape for almost a year. And I bizarrely found that incredibly comforting in the sense that this was hell and it was awful, but they got through it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, London is a wonderful, vibrant city and they rebuilt. And, and this is not that, you know, where, you know, we have tools here that we can use to protect ourselves and we can very consciously and intentionally, you know, build our society, you know, build the parts of it that are weakening right now and maybe build it back into something better. Yes. Yeah, so that was going to be my next question is what is history tell us is going to happen next? Like, will it go back to normal? But it seems like it will based on, you know, there's certain things. Sure. I mean, are we going to be able to get together with our friends again? Of course we are. Are we going to, you know, get, have bars and restaurants and parties again? Eventually, yes. And, and eventually it'll be safe again to do that. But I think what we also have, and historically, you know, the, the, the evidence plays out. Immediately following an event like this, there's also an opportunity. So what this situation has done, at least for me, I was never aware of the fragility of our medical system in this country that, you know, for weeks, if not months in certain places, basically everything was shut down unless it was a COVID-19 case. Yeah. Um, elective or cancer biopsies were being delayed because they were considered elective. You know, our medical system, not because of the, the lack of quality of our healthcare workers, not at all, but, but as a system, it was totally unprepared and underfunded and did not have enough equipment. I was reading an article about it. It's very normal for a town of 200,000 people to only have two ICU beds in their hospital. Isn't uh, that wild hearing all of this and just assuming that we're always... I mean, in America, at least for the most part, I've always assumed if I get sick that there would be a bed for me. Uh, yeah. I, know, I know most other, I mean, a lot of other countries have never been able to say that, but assuming the greatest country in the world, that yeah. was going to be... Yeah, I had no fine. idea. <laughs> I, I, was, I was floored at, floored, you know, yeah. A, the state of our medical system, but also at my own ignorance of it. You know, it mm-hmm. just... You know, so it basically, and I was telling a, a colleague, I'm like, it, it's like it can't walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> and, and just because, you know, there's this new kid in town, cancer's not going away. Heart attacks aren't going away. All of these other dangerous conditions that we face, they're still there. And, and I think we now have an opportunity to fix that. 
we collectively, I'm not a doctor, you're not a doctor, but we as a people, as Americans, we can hold our leaders accountable. And if they're not going to address these issues, if they're not going to help us, you know, strengthen our medical system so that we don't get caught flat-footed like this again, then we get new leaders into place. Mm -hmm. Uh, We elect different people who are going to reflect our priorities. We have an opportunity here to really make changes. Personally, I don't want to go back to certain versions of normal. I want to go back to better. Also, I think what I've noticed is how dependent we are on other countries for fucking medical supplies. <laughs> I had no idea. So I was I like, had no oh, idea. What? Yeah. Like what? We we're not like we have a huge manufacturing industry. How are we not manufacturing any of this stuff? <laughs> like it like, seems like a big aha moment ever at everyone in charge. Hello. Right. And and these are things that none of us knew before because mm-hmm. we've never had a situation that highlighted that or underlined that for us. Now we know. And, you know, now, you know, do we as a society want to go back to that model or do we want to say, look, we we should have a strong and very well-prepared medical system. Our doctors and nurses should not be put in the position that they've been put in in the last few months. And you know, do we want to be in a society where only a percentage of us have access to healthcare at all? I don't know. These are questions to ask ourselves, and we have an opportunity to hold our leaders accountable to fix this. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can't you can't fight an infection that you don't know is there. And now we know. Now we know where the weaknesses are. Um, and you know, we've seen a lot of things in the last few months that have really underscored problems in our society in, mm-hmm. our, in our country. And now we know. Uh, so what are we going to do about it? Well, all of this only ever comes down to voting, Vote. voting, voting, Vote. voting, 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 voting. <laughs> Vote in, in not just your federal election. No, vote local, in your local, local, local. You know, I've been talking about local. that on Instagram for days. Local, 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 local. You go local. out vote locally. That's where it starts. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's how you can affect things more immediately. And it's a critical mass. Like we, you know, exactly vote. It is a very powerful tool. The other thing too, and, you know, again, it's a little bit tangential, but back with the medical care system, I would want just people to, to be aware that it's not any less important to get medical screenings and to get preventative care. Um, cancer screenings, get your annual pap, get your mammogram, get your skin check. Um, This is critical. People are not coming in with their normal health issues. And my colleagues who are doctors are very concerned about this uh, because Mm. people are so nervous. They're so nervous about being in... We, mom had a, my mom had a doctor's appointment probably about a month in... And, you know, here it's annoying. It's hard to find a doctor. She finally found one. It took three months to get the appointment. She said, maybe I'll skip it. I'm too scared to go in. And I said, no, I'll go with you. We went in and saw the doctor. And he said, you know, we have COVID tests. We're dealing with that. And that's the second half of our day. But I looked at her. I said, you're 70 years old. These are the, those tiny moments where you think like, oh, I'll skip it. I'll put it off that we could be missing something that could be very preventative. So we were very, very, I mean, me too. We're going all through my IVF stuff. Like I've been going through all my medical procedures as I would, because obviously I trust 
that these offices and these doctors are using all the appropriate precautions. I highly doubt they would still be open if they weren't, right? So, right. Yeah. I mean, doctors and nurses don't want to get sick any more than we do. And they have the knowledge to really put appropriate measures in place. And I, you know, I know it feels scary, but it, it is, you know, they are professionals and it is really important that we stay on top of the other aspects of our health during this. So, the, the doctors that you work with are in there scared that our fellow citizens are not going into the doctor to get their usual checkups. I mean, they, they are. Yeah. One of my friends is a radiation oncologist and he um, is reporting that he and his colleagues, you know, their patients who are coming to them with newly diagnosed cases of cancer, they're coming to them at a later stage now. And with cancer, it's critical. You know, time is critical. You need to catch it as early as possible. And, but they were too nervous to go in until it became a real problem. So, mm. yeah. So, you know, it's, I, I read an interesting article the other day that's uh, written by an epidemiologist and he said, you know, this is here, you know, in certain people are dying of this virus, but we also have to learn to live with it. You know, yeah, absolutely. We have, to, we have to learn to live with this new threat and we will, we know, you know, we're learning more about it every day. Uh, and we have measures, very simple measures that we can do to protect ourselves and each other. Um, and a little bit of a shift, just because I know you know about it. And before I let you go, our current climate change and what is in the permafrost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this, I this love that you touched you know, on that. You're like, what is in the permafrost? What on earth is lurking in the permafrost? Um, possibly some very scary stuff. And this is, you know, when it comes back to climate change, climate change will affect pathogens uh, and disease development in a couple different ways. But the two principal ways are what we were talking about earlier with populations of people and animals moving and intermingling. And another factor is the permafrost. Permafrost is, you know, frozen soil, essentially, that are in the polar regions. Um, and some of it's only been frozen for a few years or a few decades. Some of it have, has been frozen for millennia. And what virologists, people who study viruses, uh, are learning. But there's stuff in there? Oh, there's lots of stuff in there and it's ancient. Oh. And there's a, a group of scientists in France who not too long ago defrosted a virus that was 30,000 years old and it was viable. It was living. No. So yeah. we are under this assumption that, oh my God. No, yes. That's so scary. That, this, if, it, that yeah. if things are super cold, it kills a virus. I mean, even in the house, David is always like, put it in the freezer, it kills a virus. No, no, no. Virus. No, it just, it just suspends them. It's like cryo sleep. It's totally, it's like Star Trek for viruses. They, um, oh um, now this particular team, the virus in question only attacks or infects amoebas. So we're safe from this one. But what they noticed about it, so it's 30,000 years old, it is a much, much more complex molecule than anything that exists today. So if there is something in the permafrost from ancient animals or ancient people that thaws <laughs> uh, and, and, comes into, and comes into contact with humans, it could be a very uh, disconcerting <laughs> scenario. And 
people being people or governments being governments, uh, Russia and America are already jockeying for the rights, the mining rights uh, for the thawing permafrost regions in, in the Arctic. And so if a human being comes into contact with an ancient human virus, uh, that could be a real problem. So Who's warning if, them about this? Uh, the epidemiologists, but the epidemiologists don't have a lot of political clout in the way our current governments are structured. And maybe these are some of the things that we can change. But it's best if the permafrost doesn't melt at all. And, and in order for that to happen, we need to stop heating up the planet. <laughs> So, um, but these are the kinds of things we can change. Uh, we can change collectively, acting collectively, again, putting pressure on our leaders. We can also affect it with where we put our dollars. Uh, you know, companies that promote fossil fuels, use fossil fuels, companies whose corporate behavior is not in line with our values and our objectives for the planet, whatever that may be for you. Um, you don't have to support those companies. So there's there's other ways that we can affect policy besides just voting, but we should definitely vote. <laughs> oh my God. Mm-hmm. So and I don't think I don't think we should be mining in the Arctic either, <laughs> just in case. For that to be the first thought is like who's gonna get their hands on that land? Yep. It's fucking disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so going forward. Last question, what can we do? I mean, th- that's it, right? Is just support the companies that are in line with our morals and values, make sure that we're voting, be nice to one another. <laughs> be nice to one another. And, and you know, I think one of the things, like because we are all going through this upheaval, people are feeling angry and upset and, and you know, and it's understandable. Um, but maybe just be more compassionate with others, with ourselves recognizing that scolding and yelling at people either in person or on social media, you're not going to ever change anyone's mind that way. Um, but having real conversations, maybe you can. And, and I mean, look, we, I know speaking for myself, I waste way too much time, um, on nonsense online, but we have these incredibly powerful tools. All of the information that we've talked about today that's all out there. You know, if, if anyone is interested in that stuff, you can find it. Um, the, this is so, uh, this is an aha moment for me because I woke up yesterday and post a bunch of stories on Instagram. And I said, what happened to us? We are screaming at each other. We have removed any sort of room for dialogue. We are not doing our own research. We have lost the ability for critical thinking, which I was like, that's the cornerstone of being a scholar. And it's attack, 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 attack. And what happened to doing our own research, finding information ourselves, it's all available and thinking about it and digesting it and thinking to yourself, how does this affect me? What am I going to do moving forward? And contextualizing maybe somebody else's angst and grief and saying, hey, let's approach it from this angle and come to a solution together instead of, when I have to cancel you. Yeah. And actually, I'm really glad that, that you said that. It's such a, a wonderful point. Like we were talking earlier about this, uncom- this discomfort we have and the loss of control. But what you just said, what you just pointed out, like this is a way we can take control. 
we can take control of you know those elements that we can by doing our homework, by, by doing our research, by checking something out and vetting it and examining the source and thinking critically about it. We all have the capability of doing that. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, it's going to enable us to approach going out into the world more confidently. We need to become our own risk managers right now. Mm. And in order to do that, we need to be as informed as possible. And all of that information is out there and available. And we need to use those critical skills that you mentioned to you know, separate the stuff that is real from the stuff that's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're all capable of doing that. You know, We've just gotten a little lazy because you know, I don't know about you, but I open up and I look at the first 10 headlines and, you know, then I leave depressed. I, you know, <laughs> like maybe if we look at different sources. That was a big conversation I had on social media yesterday is those sources and how to knock it. That's very funny that this is coming up because I think we're all, I mean, or it's a common denominator we're all feeling here. It's a little lost yeah, um, and sad. Yeah. And so how do we find better information? Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. It was great to see you, darling. <laughs> I miss you guys. Um, I know. I miss you guys too. And hopefully we can travel there soon. Everyone who's listening, my sister, my brother is a naval captain. And so they live in Maryland. Yes. But I think I'll be coming out to LA toward the end of the summer. I haven't been out since November, which is the longest I've ever gone. I like my passport's getting dusty. It doesn't know what to do with itself. What? No international trip? Um, but yes, we, we will get back to, you know, those parts of our lives. It's, it's not gone forever, but we just need to be sort of smart and intentional about how we go about things. Well, thank you. All right. Love you. Love you. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Bye. And that, ladies and gentlemen, concludes this week's episode of Everything is the Best. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Maybe leave a comment. But remember, shitty comments are for shitty people. Go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Pia Barangini. And I hope you have a fabulous, fabulous rest of your day. Love you. Ciao.